Well, we're going to be in Mark this morning, Mark chapter 9. I love the story that we're looking at uh, this morning. Um, you know, Mark is normally the most brief in his accounts of stories. The other gospel writers tend to expound more, but it's interesting. The story that we're reading today, Mark gives like double the information um, as compared to the other gospels. And I think that says something about the impact that this story had on him. Now, you'll remember if you've been here the last few weeks um, that from Mark 8, chapter 8, verse 27 on to where we'll be today in Mark chapter 9, and it's the same in Matthew and Luke, it's the same material, the issue that's been at hand is the identity of Jesus. There's been a series of stories and accounts and teachings that are helping us understand who Jesus really is. It starts in, in Mark 8 by Jesus asking, who are people saying that I am? wants to know from the disciples. And they say, some are saying you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. Basically, the people think that you're an extraordinary prophet or teacher, which is true about Jesus, right? He's the chief prophet, and he's the chief teacher. But he's also more than that. And from that point in, in Mark chapter 8 on, this uh, answer about who Jesus is gets explained to us. We find out in Peter's confession, remember, when the Holy Spirit shows him the identity of Jesus, Peter's confession is you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one of God, the one chosen by God to deliver God's people. And then we find out from Jesus that he's the suffering Christ, that part of the divine plan is that he is going to not just minister in victory, but he's going to go to the cross and there win for us redemption. So he's the suffering Christ. And we find out in the transfiguration, which we looked at last week, when the veil is pulled back for a second, and Peter, James, and John are able to see Jesus for who he really is in his glorified state, uh, we learn that Jesus is the unrivaled Christ, right? We said that last week, that he's the unrivaled main point of everything. He's the glorified Christ. And the reason we exalt him in gatherings like this is because there is nothing above him, certainly, but there's also nothing beside him. Everything is underneath him in his exalted place. Now, in the Gospels all the way through, it's not just enough for the Gospel writers or for Jesus in his own ministry to give us some information about who Jesus is, like these bullet points about Jesus' identity. It's always the intention of Jesus to not only tell us who he is, but to demonstrate it. And so it's no, surprising, it's, it's no surprise that right after this amazing experience of, of seeing Jesus glorified, that they come down from the mountain into this situation of demonization that we're going to look at this morning. Because the, Peter, James, and John see who Jesus is, and now they're going to see who Jesus is, if you know what I mean. They, they're understanding something about his identity, and now they're going to see the implications of that identity for a, for a boy who is in bondage to a demonic spirit. So where we're going to start today is in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. I'll just ask you to stand one more time, and we'll read this together. It'll be on the screen behind me. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. 
He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind, can only come, this kind can come out only by prayer. And some of you may see a little notation in your uh, Bibles that some of the early manuscripts say prayer and fasting. Even if the words and fasting were added by the early church uh, to this manuscript, it gives us some indication of what the early believers thought Jesus meant by this. It's not just, you know, shooting up a quick prayer but pressing up in intercession even to the point of fasting. You can take your seats. All right. When I looked at this passage this week, I saw a family story of deliverance and a story where one family member brings another family member to Jesus to be released from their bondage. And so that's how I want to treat this passage this morning. Rather than just asking, you know, what does this mean for me? I want us to ask, well, what does this passage mean for me and for the people that I love? Um, whoever it is that we consider to be those relationships that are close enough to be family, you know, whether it's blood or, or close friendships, whoever it is that we love. Um, my main point this morning is that we're never supposed to reject our loved ones, but neither do we partner with their bondage. I'm going to make a distinction here. And faith looks like persistently positioning them, persistently positioning those that we love in front of Jesus. So I hope there's some things that we can glean from this. So before we get into the passage, um, I just want to explain some dynamics of deliverance, some of which we see in this passage. This is obviously an intense story. I noticed, I don't know if you've seen, CNN is running a special soon on demonization in Haiti. And that is such an American way to deal with this issue. Well, of course, in Haiti, there's demons, you know. Of course, in a place like that, you know, there would be demons. We always somehow want to push the problem of demons across the ocean, you know, and let it, let it be somebody else's problem. But if we let the Bible be uh, the picture of reality, you know, in this world, then we have to face the fact that Jesus did a lot of this kind of ministry, kind of wherever he went. It's, it's as common in the Gospels as healing is. Not only does he heal the sick, which we tend to be way more comfortable with when we talk about Jesus, but connected to healing the sick, he's also casting out 
impure spirits. So just a little review on demonization. Demons are these fallen, irredeemable spirits, fallen angels who have gained illegal access to the creation because of the sinfulness of humanity. So rebelled against God. By the way, angels aren't like humans, according to scriptures, partly because they are irredeemable. Um, God has not extended to them an offer of grace like he has to humanity. So once fallen, always fallen. People are redeemable, right? And God has made a way for our salvation, but it's not the case for these angels that have fallen. And in the sinfulness of humanity, they've gained access to the creation, so much so that some of the New Testament writers use terms for Satan like ruler and God, little g, to denote that there is real influence, you know, that he exercises, that there's real bondage that he puts on the creation, but it's an illegal ruling. Now, it's not something that God ever intended. And in the ministry of Jesus, right, in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking into the earth. So I've often, you know, heard the question asked, how come in the Old Testament, it, you know, we have some references to Satan and impure spirits, but not nearly as many as we have in the New Testament. What's going on there? Well, some of it is that in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus, and we've talked about this before, beginning in the ministry of Jesus, there's not one kingdom on the earth, just the kingdom of darkness. Now there's two kingdoms on the earth that are in conflict with each other, right? A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And it's the stirring up of that conflict between kingdoms that makes what was always there and hidden now revealed. And it's why spiritual warfare intensifies in the New Testament because God's kingdom is literally driving this stuff out of the creation. I would just point this out that in the New Testament, demonization is common, not uncommon. Now, sometimes I've heard American Christians say things like, well, you know, there's not a demon behind every bush. I agree. I guess behind not every bush there's a demon. But, listen, our problem typically in our culture is not to see too much of this. It's to see too little. And that's probably the case even for those of us uh, who are here worshiping this morning. Our tendency is to struggle with this because of some cultural dynamics. But there are various degrees of demonization. You know, I've mentioned this before, but in some of our English translations, the word possession is used, and it can be misleading because possession denotes ownership, and it's doubtful that demons own anything, much less people um, who are the pinnacle of God's creation, you know, created in his image. But it is true that part of this illegal access issue is that they exercise influence on people. Um, now, if someone is not in Christ, there is a particular vulnerability that they have to demonic influence. That makes sense, right? But it's not just unbelievers that can be affected by the oppression of the enemy. I bet if I just asked in this room, have you ever felt like you've been being oppressed by the devil? Probably hands would go up, right? It's on a, it's on a spectrum, you know? Not every case is as bad as the one that we just read, but we know what it's like for the enemy to try to influence us and twist things. And Jesus would not have told us, his people, the church, to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? He would not have told us to pray for deliverance if it wasn't an issue for even those of us who are in Christ, because on this side of glory, we're in a war. Now, one thing I want to point out in today's passage is that demons love to exploit passivity. Often their goal 
is to find a weakness in the human will. And in the place of that will to begin to exercise influence. And this is why sometimes it can look really severe, like it did in this passage. Notice that this little boy has lost his power of speech. His will has been so taken over by the spirit that sometimes his tongue has become passive to that demon, right? And it's why he's getting thrown into fire. And are you all okay? This is crazy stuff to talk about. We okay this morning? All right. It's why he's getting thrown into water and fire and these kinds of things. And I just want to point out, it is, isn't it disturbing to hear a story about a child experiencing demonization? But listen, we just, need to, we just need to be real for a second because we can't put our head in the sand. Some of you are like, oh, no, I know this is real, Joel. <laughs> Have you seen my kids? No. Listen, <laughs> listen we, need to, we, need to, we need to take our head out of the sand some on this issue because, listen, Scripture's testimony is that every single one of us was born into a war, right, where we were prisoners of war. That was our starting place at birth because of our sin. And when Jesus found us, how many of you are grateful that he found us? He took us out of the prisoner of war camp and put us onto the battlefield. We just changed positions in the war from just being victimized by this to being on the offense with it. But we're still in a war and you didn't sign up, you got drafted, right? That's what happened. You got put into this war. So for us to pretend like this isn't happening, like it's not real, is really dangerous to us. And it is dangerous to our kids because talking about the exploitation of passivity and wills, this is why the weak and vulnerable are sometimes exploited by the enemy. And it's why our kids need praying parents. Come on. It's why our kids need praying parents. And why they need praying grandparents. We have no reason to fear, but this father sees exactly what's going on. This spirit is trying to kill my son. You know, he understands. This isn't a little skirmish. It is always the intention of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. And where passivity becomes evident and then the enemy exploits it, God, he could do this all by himself, but he often uses us. He will often call into the picture another human will empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise their will empowered by the Spirit of God to send that thing away to restore to the person their own will. See how it works? And that's why God often uses us in deliverance. He uses our own Spirit-empowered wills. And by the way, if you're in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit in you, welcome to the fight. Welcome to the ability to do this. This isn't just for, Hollywood wants to like treat this like it's so uncommon that only, you know, weird priests with crosses and stuff can do it. Listen, if you're in Jesus, you can do it. If you're in Jesus, it is written, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we also see something that, that is sobering in this passage. The deliverance isn't always instant or automatic. Listen, I'm using this language of war because it really is a war. You know, and, and in war, there's advances and there's being pushed back, right? In war, there's casualties. This is the real deal, folks. You know, this is a war, and it's why even here when the disciples try, at first, they don't have victory. Now, I love, aside from Jesus, who has to, you know, he should be our favorite character in this story, right? Jesus is our favorite character in the story. But aside from Jesus, 
My favorite character in the story is the father. I think he does such an amazing job at positioning his boy for the deliverance that he knows Jesus can bring. There's two things that he does not do with his son that I want to point out. He doesn't reject his son because of his son's issues, and neither does he partner with his son's bondage. And I want to talk to you about both those things because in my experience, maybe yours, this is my tendency with those who are close to me, who are experiencing oppression from the enemy. My tendency is to either want to reject or to partner. And he does something different. He positions his son in front of Jesus. So first of all, we don't reject our loved ones. There's a number of ways that we reject someone without even sending them away. You know, maybe the most common is bitterness, right? Just a refusal to forgive. You know, so we see bondage, um, you know, manifesting in someone who's close to us. It hurts us. And then our response to that is to resist forgiveness, bitterness, or shame. You know, shame is another way that we reject even the people that we keep in our lives. We're so... (laughs) Do you guys know what that is? All right, um, so our second tendency, our second tendency is shame. We good? Jesus. Okay, our second, our second tendency is shame. And listen, in shame, um, what we do is we like keep the brokenness that's close to us a secret because we're afraid for other people to see it. Now, I don't know if this father planned on this or not, but do you see how the brokenness of his family is on full display for this crowd. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, right? And it would have been easy, wouldn't it have been easy for this father to retreat in shame you know, and be like, you know, people are going to think this is my fault. People are going to think that this is, you know, going to, you know, reflect on me and, and my ability to parent. Instead, it's just, it, it's even in front of these judgmental religious leaders, you know, and And he doesn't let it stop him from getting the person that he loves in front of Jesus. So I said, bitterness, shame, and then weariness is another way that we reject. You know, eventually we just find that our own love has limits. And we find that we have nothing left to give the person that's close to us that's in bondage. And and it brings us into touch with the limits of our love and the need for an unlimited source of love, which we find in Jesus himself. Now listen, if we reject those who are close to us in bondage with bitterness, shame, or weariness, here's here's the kicker. It actually makes us vulnerable to what they have become vulnerable to. The enemy actually gets his way. It actually opens up in our hearts a kind of passivity that means that the bondage that is right next to us Um, has the ability to manifest in our own lives. But on the flip side, and my guess is that this is a lot of us, even in this room, we don't partner with the bondage either that's in somebody else. Because the only thing, church, that we partner with as those who are in Christ is the kingdom of God, right? We partner with everything that is of the kingdom and of that kingdom's king, Jesus the Christ. But we don't partner with the bondage that's in other people. And I was thinking about this. I've partnered with bondage with people who are close to me in three different ways. Sometimes I've just settled with it. You know, I have just come to accept it, stopped seeing a vision for what that person 
could be in the kingdom of God, we can become apathetic not only to our own bondage, but to the bondage of those who are closest to us. And we just kind of make peace with it. Listen, sometimes in family systems, the bondage that manifests in one person becomes so severe that it becomes abusive to other people. And listen, the church has been at its worst when it has partnered with that scenario. Come on. The church has been at its worst when it has partnered with the abuse of one person's bondage over another. And oftentimes, the way it gets partnered with is by just no one saying anything. Now listen, everyone, you know, can be vulnerable to abuse, but I just want to say this, that for a church culture to in any way, you know, permit or turn its eye to the abuse of women and children is partnering with the wrong kingdom. You hear me? It's partnering with the wrong kingdom. And Crestmont, listen, not on our watch, not here. Not on our watch, not here. We are called to protect those who are vulnerable. And I want to say, if you're experiencing abuse, there are people close to you in this church who can help you. We will help you. Because listen, there's no such thing as going about ministry partnering with the abuse of another human being, right? It, it doesn't happen that way. It can't happen that way. So sometimes we want to settle with it. Sometimes we want to excuse it. Sometimes I hear family members, I think it's an attempt to be compassionate, but we begin to excuse the bondage in other people by talking about them like they're always a victim, you know? Well, the reason they act that way is because of the woundedness that they went through. You know, well, this happened in their childhood, and that's why they act like that. Listen, it's good to be compassionate, but I'm just telling you, part of my testimony is that the people who really helped me get free were people who could be compassionate with my woundedness, but did not always talk to me like I was a victim. And let me tell you, what they risked in that, what they risked in shooting straight with me, even in my pain, was offending me, right? But they loved me enough to tell me the truth. You know, they loved me enough to say true things to me, to say, look, I know you're hurting, and I might offend you as I push through that hurt, but I love you too much to partner with the bondage that's in your life. Because listen, bondage finds its way into our life primarily in two ways, in sin or in wounds, right? When we cede over our will to habitual sin, it creates a vulnerability to demonic influence. It does. But we can be freed from it. But it creates a vulnerability. Likewise, our woundedness, our pain, often creates a vulnerability to the enemy messing with our wills, right? And the people who helped me were people who wouldn't let me excuse it. Or, and I've done this one too, sometimes we try to make a deal with the other person's bondage, right? Um, Because we have bought into this lie that the only way we can get what we need from that person is to partner with the bondage instead of partner with the kingdom and evicting those issues. You know, so one time I was ministering uh, to a woman and she was telling me about a family member who had struggled with alcoholism for years. And uh, I was noticing that some parts of the story weren't lining up when I was asking her some questions. And I said, well, how does he, you know, get his hands on the alcohol? Because by that point, there had been several DUIs and he lost his license. Guess who was buying it for him? Yeah. And listen, I'm not judging her because we've all done this, you know, with some of the bondage that's close to us in one form or fashion. She had experienced a lot of loss and pain in her life and she needed him to stay there. And if staying there meant that she would provide the booze so that he could get drunk there, 
Somehow she settled with that. She made a deal with his bondage. But it's going to hold both him and her in bondage and not take them to freedom. The father in this story, I love this, does neither of those things. On one hand, he doesn't reject his son. He's not ashamed, bitter, embarrassed, whatever. But on the other hand, he refused to partner with it, settle with it. Well, I guess for the rest of our life, he's just going to throw himself in the fire and water. You know, we'll just adjust. He refused to settle for that because this is his son. So what he does is he persistently positions his boy in front of the deliverer, in front of the one that he knows can do something. And I want to make some observations about faith from this passage in these last few minutes. Listen, you need to know, faith, believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do, faith does not guarantee a miracle in Scripture. It doesn't. You need to know that because there's some churches that teach that. But, but in the wake of those churches are a lot of hurt people. Because faith does not guarantee a miracle. Neither do all miracles require faith. We have examples in Scripture where God just sovereignly did something even though no person exercised faith. But what is clear in Scripture is that there is an undeniable correlation between faith and God's inbreaking in the miraculous, right? There's a correlation between faith and the miraculous. It is absolutely true to say from Scripture that you are more likely to see God do the impossible and in an environment where faith is operative. Now listen, God can do what he wants, right? God can break in into an environment where there's no faith at all and still do what he wants. But you are more likely to see God do the impossible where faith is being exercised. He doesn't need it, but he chooses to cooperate with it as we exercise it, even on the behalf of other people. So Jesus, when he's healing and casting out demons, what he's often doing is cultivating faith. You know all those strange things that sometimes he does before miracles, mud in people's eyes and spitting on people and um, asking them questions and having them do things? So much of that, clearing the room, that's another one. A lot of that is about Jesus cultivating an environment of faith and faith in human hearts to kind of open up the door for the impossible to happen. So Jesus has a radar he did through his whole ministry for faith, and he finds it in this passage. He finds it in the Father. And listen, it's amazing. What he finds is a little bit of faith. It's all he finds, but it's enough in this passage. So I just want to point out some things that faith is in this passage for this, for this man. The faith is trying again after failure. Failure. Do you think this is the first time this guy's prayed about this? Do you think this is the first time he's tried to get help? You know, it may have been in the day in which Jesus lived, there were Jewish exorcists as well who would try to cast out spirits. Who knows? He may have even taken his son to one of those people and nothing happened. But listen, faith is so often strengthened and formed in the midst of our failures. You know, we tend to think that failure is going to crush faith, but often what God does is the opposite. It's often in the midst of failure that even the little bit of faith begins to shine brighter than it ever has before because of the failure that's around. And so he just knows what he's got to do is get his son in front of Jesus. Think about all that he did. They packed up. They went to where Jesus was. Had the disciples try to do it. It didn't work. So then he presses in and he takes his son to Jesus himself. He's positioning his son for healing. Listen, I like to say that when people come to me with their brokenness, my job isn't to heal them, right? I can't heal anybody. You can't heal anybody. 
right? Our job isn't to heal the loved ones that are closest to us. It is to position them in the presence of the healer, right? And there's all kinds of ways that we can position people for healing. You know, not saying the truth doesn't position them for healing, right? But cursing them with our words doesn't position them for healing. Being truthful and loving and blessing them and pointing them to places and environments where they can get hope and healing. That's how we position our loved ones. And then we just need God to do what only he can do, right? The way we cooperate is just by positioning them, not by doing it ourselves. And this man, somehow in the midst of all this failure, he believes that Jesus can do something. And that more than that, that he might want to do something. Jesus says that it's, anything is possible for the one who believes. Faith has a way of expanding possibilities, right? Like in the natural, we see limited options. I, 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 you know, sometimes people come to me and I'm counseling them about something and I hear them talk about only two options. Like there's only two options in the world. You know, either I do this or this. It's A and B. But when faith comes into the picture, it adds a whole different dynamic because God can do whatever he wants, right? And so now it's not just A and B, but it's all of these other things that God is able to do, things we didn't think about before, ways that God is able to break in. And I want you to notice that this man's faith isn't like, Jesus, I know you can do it. Sometimes we think the louder we get, the more faith-filled we are. But that's not what this faith is like. This faith that Jesus identifies in this passage and then cooperates for this boy's deliverance. Listen, this faith is like, I believe kinda, right? That's what this man has to offer in this moment. It's been a long journey and a long day, for that matter. And what he has to offer is, yeah, I believe a little bit. But then I love this prayer, help me overcome my unbelief. Because listen, he saw something powerful. Often, we want faith to address the circumstance before it addresses us. Often, we want the kingdom to to take over the circumstance and fix it before it takes over us, to conquer that before it conquers this, but it is often flipped. Often the first thing the kingdom overcomes is us in prayer, and then it takes over the circumstances that we're praying about, if the worship team could come forward. Listen, that's often the order. And so this man's prayer is basically, yeah, I mean, Jesus, I believe I'm doing the best I can, but your kingdom come here before your kingdom comes to my son. Listen, we are so often so intent on fixing the loved ones that are next to us that we don't realize the best thing that we can offer them is a version of us where Jesus is really king, right? That's what we can offer people, is a version of us where Jesus is really king. That's going to be the best chance, you know, for their healing. That's going to be the best chance for their renewal, you know, for their restoration, that Jesus would first conquer here. I love this too, that after, after this incident and the boy gets delivered, the disciples say, hey, how come we couldn't do it? By the way, their faith must have been zero because <laughs> this man had what Jesus said, uh, the faith of a mustard seed, and it was enough to overcome the enemy. Isn't that amazing? The faith of a mustard seed can overcome the enemy. So they come and they say, Jesus, what happened? And he, he answers, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Listen, I want to tell you, when it comes to deliverance, and I've had many people in front of me oppressed by spirits, and listen, we don't have to be afraid of this because we have authority. But, but listen, 
in, in those instances, power trumps skill every time. It's not about the skill that we have, saying the right words. Hollywood makes it about the skill, right? If I put the cross here, right? If I pray this way, right? But skill trumps power every time. I mean, whoops, power trumps skill every time when it comes to deliverance, all right? And it's his power, not ours, that wins the day, right? Um, But it is also true that we can grow in power. Um, And listen, we're not earning anything from God when we grow in power. What we're doing really, the way we grow in power is it sinks in deeper and deeper on us who God is, what he's able to accomplish. You know what prayer and fasting accomplishes? Not the twisting of God's arm to free someone that we want to see freed. What prayer and fasting accomplishes is it fills us with faith. We remember who he is. And listen, this dynamic that's being talked about here I know, I, I resonate with it. I remember when I was in India, it was like, I better stay prayed up because every meeting, we knew we were going to be facing deliverance, you know? And listen, if I hadn't prayed, if I hadn't worshipped, I'm just telling you, it's not about earning power, but what was going to happen was this really broken person was going to be standing in front of me and maybe even crazy things were going to be happening that the enemy intends to scare you with. And I was going to be like, Jesus please, kind of, would you do something? But when I know who Jesus is, come on, if you could stand to your feet, if I know who Jesus is, if I remember that he's the victorious one, if I know that he died for my sins, and that this is what Paul says in Colossians, that Jesus made a spectacle of the enemy at the cross. You know what that means? He was thinking about something the Romans did. They would march the defeated ones through the city first before they executed them. Listen, the cross won the victory. The age in which we live in is the march of the demonic through the streets with celebrating crowds to their death. That's what we live in. Listen, Jesus won that victory. And so we can trust it for our loved ones.